So, Joseph's journey from prison to palace, we want to invite the kids in our congregation and our families and our neighborhoods, we want to invite you to come and experience this story with us as we talk about Joseph a little bit. Moms and dads, you're not left out. You can volunteer, you can participate, you can come. We're actually, during Vacation Bible School, we're also going to have some seminars from local experts on different areas like uh, finances, uh, marriage, uh, how to be a good parent. Um, so this week, July 11, not this week, this week is not July 11, uh, the week of Ju July 11 through 15, uh, Vacation Bible School will be happening here. We have some cards that will be available if you need a reminder, something to stick on the fridge, uh, or if you want to share some of the cards with maybe some of your friends, neighbors, relatives, um, but we'll have them available in the lobby after the service and also uh, back in, the, in this entrance as well. You'll see a station there. And registration is open. Uh, you can sign up now, it's free. Um, you can find out more at our website, boulder.church slash VBS. Stands for Vacation Bible School. Uh, it's not a contagious disease, VBS. Uh, finally, um, we are working on having some more worship guides printed. If you need one, uh, we'll have some more in, in a few minutes if you didn't get one this morning. But we want you to know inside that worship guide, there's a connect card. We want to know if you're here visiting, if you're here all the time. We want to know that you're here uh, on paper too. So if you would, when you, when you see the connect card in your worship guide, if you want to fill that out, it could be a change of address. You could be requesting prayer or membership transfer. All kinds of, you could, don't write anything mean about the sermon. Um, but if you, if you want to fill one of those out, we have our giving altars at the back doors of the sanctuary, and also there's one up here. Um, so, let's dive in. Uh, we're in week two of a three-part series called Resisting Restlessness. We're talking about Christianity and culture. And even more specifically, we're talking about this idea of Sabbath. We started last week by looking at the Ten Commandments, trying to understand how in the Exodus story they're presented as a countercultural way of being in the world. And we talked about uh, specifically about how the Ten Commandments were about being the people of Yahweh, right? It was about being God's people in the world. So we looked at the first three commandments and dealt with what that looked like, how the people un could understand God. And then we came to the fourth commandment. And you may remember we said, the fourth commandment is what really starts to sort of set this new way of being in the world apart. It's where we see that the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God, is not like the economy of Pharaoh. In Pharaoh's world, people are commodities because commodities are what's most valuable. Most valuable. But in the kingdom of God, people are treasures. So let's look at what the text has to say itself. Exodus 20, uh, verses 8 through 11. It says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work or your son or daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner, sometimes we translate that as stranger, within your gates. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Now, the word that's used in this text is Shabbat, but it's closely related to another Hebrew word, a verb, Shavat. And Shavat means literally to cease, to stop. It's not a passive it's not a passive verb. It's not like you sort of just accidentally aren't going anymore, but it's actually an intentional, active stopping to rest. So before Dina and I got married, you may have seen this picture on Instagram or one like it. Um, before Dina and I got married, we, uh, this is Penelope. Penelope was our dog. Penelope is not our dog anymore. Uh, she is a Jack Russell Terrier. She gave Jack Russells everywhere a bad name. Uh, she was, I mean, this was, she was so cute. Um, this, was, this is one of the few pictures that I got of Penelope that was mostly in focus. Because usually she was, she, she was really intelligent. We trained her to do, we, we mistook intelligent for, for, for uh, trainable. But we did manage to, to teach her to do, to do a few things. She could sit, she could lay down, she could spin one way, she could spin the other way, she could jump, she could bark at two in the morning. Uh, she was good at that one. But the, the real problem with Penelope, beyond anything else, as much as we loved this dog, was that she never, ever, ever stopped. Always moving, always bouncing off some piece of furniture in the house or a door or a person. Penelope was always in motion. She was always moving, always, always going. And then we learned about a trick. We read about something that, you know, dog experts swore would work. And it actually did a, a few times. Um, if, if you could catch Penelope, and that was a big if, uh, you would we, we could hold her arms, well, not arms, legs, I guess. Dogs don't have arms. Um, you could hold her legs, hold her still, really, really tight. And then somehow at the same time, you were supposed to sort of relax. So she knew she wasn't going anywhere, and yet at the same time, you wanted her to sense this calm. So you would slow down your breathing. You would try and just, try and just be very, you know, be one with the puppy, kind of like, and it, it, it didn't work often, but every once in a while, you could hold her long enough, still enough, and Penelope would finally let out a, a sigh. And that was your cue. You knew that at least for two or three seconds, she was actively stopping. It never lasted long. And I'm not sure that Penelope... The definition maybe of Shavat in here is maybe a little bit loose. I don't know that she was actually practicing Sabbath when she was restrained that tightly, but um, this idea of, of not just sort of accidentally stopping, but, but something that is intentional, something that is on purpose. Um, another example from the world of cycling, I guess there's a, a, an Ironman going on today, right? So um, if you're a cyclist, uh, I understand that the cool new thing now in cycling is, well, it's not new anymore, but fixie bicycles. Stands for like a fixed wheel. We call them fixies for short, but basically the idea with a fixie is that as long as your feet are moving one direction or the other, you move in that direction. 
but they're not like the bikes that I grew up with where you could sort of coast. Like, it's not that kind of stopping. And if you want to, there are no brakes on a fixie. If you want to stop, you have to, you have to stop. Otherwise, you keep going and the bike stops. Um, so we're talking about this idea of, of ceasing, stopping. And in the scriptures, uh, there's, there's, there are some places where the word Shabbat or Shabbat is not written by itself. It's actually written a couple times in a couple different ways. Shabbat, Shabbaton. Um, the idea is it's not just, it's not just a rest. It's, a, it's not just Sabbath. It's Sabbath, Sabbath. Like the writers want us to know this is not something we take casually. This is something, this is serious rest. So I want to acknowledge that there are a few different approaches we could take this morning and through the rest of the series. All of them with their own merit. Uh, to get sort of a better understanding of what Sabbath is, what it represents, what it looks like in our lives. For example, um, we could look at Scripture and history, and we could spend a lot of time establishing how Sabbath, as we understand it, is the seventh day, Saturday. Um, we could do that. And in fact, Seventh Day Adventism, that's, that's part of where we get our name from, right? Um, there's a long-standing tradition and... Uh, there's a long-standing tradition of doing this and of doing it well. It's part of the reason that we as a tribe celebrate Sabbath from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. We have this in common with our brothers and sisters in the Jewish stream of faith. And it's something that sort of sets us apart from some of our Christian neighbors. We could also take a prophetic approach uh, Stephen Covey wrote a book that's famous now, and maybe a lot of us have read it. It's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of the habits that he proposes is that we begin with the end in mind. Well, Adventists have been doing that for years. When we take a prophetic approach, we, we look at the Advent, the second coming of Jesus, through the way it's presented in Revelation, and we understand a lot of the rest of our theology through that. So we could certainly take that approach. But the trouble that I would have with either one, the challenge that I would have with either one, is that quite honestly, to do either one well requires a lot more time than I have in a three-week series. So if we want to talk about it more, we can do that, make an appointment with Pastor Japheth or any of the other pastors. We'd be happy to talk about it. But um, In order to do that, I'm, I'm afraid that the best that I could do would be to sort of take bits and pieces from each, build sort of a, make sort of a house of cards approach that led to some conclusion about Sabbath. And what I'm afraid would happen in that case is that at some point, you would recognize something that didn't quite seem like, this, maybe this piece doesn't add up the way Pastor Elias said it would, and maybe that piece falls, and before long, if it's a house of cards approach, the whole thing for you would sort of fall flat. But here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is, if you're missing a worship guide, Pastor Japheth and Matt have some of those for you. If you would just raise your hand. Um, the interesting thing is, as we study Sabbath, as we come to understand it better, we start to see that it is connected with other areas of our lives, that it is connected with prophecy, that it is connected with history. And understanding those things only helps the beauty of this thing 
to come out even more clearly. So my, my well, uh, you may have heard us talk about the Strengths Quest inventory here. We, we, all of the members of our pastoral team have taken it. Many of our elders have taken it. Most, if not all, I think. Um, but one of the things I learned about myself when I took the Strengths Quest inventory is that connectedness is one of my strengths. So I'm constantly looking for ways. How are these? How, maybe you're wired this way too. So I hear, this is the way I'm wired. I hear about a book called Everything is Spiritual. And I order four copies, one for me and one for everyone else I know. And I haven't even read the subtitle. And then it comes in the mail and it's Everything is Spiritual, A Practical Guide to Cooking for Your Church Potluck. Um, that's not a real book, I don't think. But that's the, the way I'm wired when I hear about connections between things. It's, it's, there's something about me that is, that's exciting. And maybe you're wired the same way. So I want to be careful not to take sort of the, the house of cards approach to talking about Sabbath. Because I believe one of the beautiful things about Sabbath as a concept, as a practice, as a celebration is that it does stand on its own. It connects with history and prophecy and it helps us to understand who God is, but I believe that it stands on its own. So for today and next week, I'd like to take a different approach because along with the history and prophecy, if you came today because we're doing a series about Sabbath, I'm guessing you're here for one of a few reasons. One might be it's your home church and you show up here every week no matter what. That's a great reason to be here. Uh, another reason might be that you're interested in learning more about this, the history, what the Bible has to say about it, and we're gonna do that this morning. Um, another reason that you might be here is because you want permission. Some of us that have grown up with this word Sabbath recognize at once a tradition where we didn't watch the best cartoons that came on all week long because we knew they came on on Saturday morning. We were only allowed to wade up to a certain height. The water could only come up to knee level. We couldn't play cards, we couldn't dance. Well, those weren't just Sabbath things, but. We had the schedule of movie times in one hand and the sunset calendar in the other hand, comparing which ones were okay, which ones we were allowed to go see. We weren't looking at the ratings, we were just looking at the, the times, right, to see which ones matched up. This may have been the culture that you grew up in. And so last week when we talked about the idea of Sabbath being countercultural, you thought to yourself, hallelujah, we're getting permission next week. Or maybe you're here because you want ammunition. You have heard about Sabbath, observed, practiced Sabbath since the day you were born in the back corner of this room. And it may really vex your soul to realize that people leave this building every week and they walk down to Pearl Street or they drive somewhere else and they eat in a restaurant on Sabbath. Some of them even leave before Bible study class begins because they want a good seat. And so you're here this morning because the culture of permissiveness is so frustrating and you wanna be able to say, see, see, I've been telling you all this time you're not treating Sabbath with respect or reverence it deserves. So, before I tell you who wins, we're actually not gonna do that this week. 
Because again, people have been worrying about what is the best way to practice Sabbath? What is the best way to be faithful to God since forever? So I want to read you a brief article uh, that I came across online this week. And there's a photo that goes along with it. Headline is this, Adventist Church lowers maximum possible depth of Sabbath wading water. The wading depth discussion is finally over. Silver Spring, Maryland, in an effort to more tightly articulate acceptable Sabbath-keeping practices, the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists has released a new maximum depth of water through which members can wade on Sabbath afternoon walks without being in danger of doing their own pleasure. What a relief. While previously church guidelines had set the maximum water level at roughly knee height, GC Sabbath observance inspector Tama Na said the new maximum water level of 28 inches would be set as a golden standard for all Adventists, regardless of how high set individual members' kneecaps might be. While concerned members of the Adventist Society of Pharisaical Thought responded that 28 inches of water still allowed a swimmable depth for children and exceptionally creative adults, the GC said that the new standard would eliminate the need for too much personal interpretation of biblical Sabbath observance in the 21st century. Done. Of course, many of you recognize pretty quickly, if not right away, this article came from our friends at Barely Adventist, which is a satirical website. Um, it's run by a group of friends who love Adventism, who have grown up in it, but every once in a while like to poke a little fun at some of our personality quirks. So we laugh at an article like this one, but it makes a really interesting point. Negotiating how best to keep Sabbath, how best to be faithful to God in this way, can be complicated. It can be a little bit perplexing. For example, when some of the founders of Adventism were trying to um, establish what we believe, how we practice, some said Sabbath should be practiced from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., uh, 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. on Saturday, regardless. 6 p.m. should be, you know, the magic time. But then someone said, well, what do we do? What do we do about places in the world where sunset happens and then it's dark for three months. How do we practice the Genesis model of, of Sabbath from sunset to sunset if it, if it takes three months for a day to be over? How do we, how do, we do that? More recently, um, Sabbath keepers in parts of the world who live close to the international dateline have had to wrestle with this a little bit. The International Dateline Committee, that's not their name, I just made that up, but the people who are responsible for drawing the, the, the imaginary lines around the globe, every once in a while revisit that and they think, well, maybe we should move the date line just a little bit this way or just a little bit that way. And effectively what that means is that people have, who live close to that line, occasionally, a day is not the same day that it used to be. If, if the date line moves one way, then what used to be Saturday now feels like Friday. If they move it the other direction, then what is Saturday feels like so, so how can people of faith who live in these settings be faithful to what God has asked them to do? The children of Israel 
found themselves in exile at one point. And they decided after studying scripture, after listening to the prophets, they decided that the problem, the reason that God had rejected them as his people was because they were improperly keeping Sabbath. And so they came up with a system, right? They came up with, with rules that Sandy, Sandy talked about earlier. They came, up, they came up with a system that eventually turned into around, roughly, 613 rules and sub-rules for how to keep Sabbath alone. One of them was that you could only travel a certain distance on what was called a Sabbath day's journey. This was roughly 3,000 feet, a little over half a mile. So, quick survey, how many of you would be at church today if you could only travel half a mile? None of us. This would be a quiet service. Uh, But there was a loophole. If before Sabbath you traveled close to the end of that 3,000 feet and planted a meal there, then on Sabbath you could walk the distance, you could take the Sabbath day's journey, enjoy your meal, and then you could begin a new Sabbath day's journey. I can just imagine picnic baskets sprinkled throughout the land of the children of Israel. So there were loopholes for certain rules, and for, there were loopholes for some of the loopholes. But just imagine having to memorize the entire system. Imagine what a burden that would be. How ironic it is that Sabbath, the day with a name that literally means to rest, to cease from work, would become such a burden to carry. 613 rules to prevent God from abandoning his people again. That brings us to our first recalibrate question for this morning in your worship guide. What kinds of things do you do to prevent God from abandoning you? I could have written this question differently. I thought about writing it differently. I thought about saying, what could we do to make God abandon us? But we all know it's sort of a, like, on sort of the, you know, the, the, the churchy answer, we all know the answer we're supposed to give. There's nothing I could do that would make God abandon me. And that's beautiful when we say it here. But when we live our lives, what are the things in your life? Some of us do extra things, and some of us think to ourselves, well, if I didn't do that so much, maybe I would still experience the presence of God in my life like I used to. What is it for you? So aside from the commandments in Exodus, where should we go to understand how followers of Jesus today might be faithful to God in practicing Sabbath? Well, one idea, and we're probably going to go with this because I wrote the sermon and that's where we're headed, is that we should look at what Jesus did, how Jesus practiced Sabbath, how he understood it. So first, we know that he was born and raised a Jew. He knew how to practice Sabbath. He was fluent in, in that way of being in the world. The gospel writers tell us that he went to the synagogue or church every Sabbath. It was his custom. He would have grown up in a family that observed Sabbath from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. And so Jesus understood Jewish culture. He was fluent in that way of being in the world, but he also recognized another way of being in the world. Another way of understanding Sabbath that actually got him into a lot of trouble with the religious establishment, right? 
In particular, there are a few stories about Jesus performing miracles that I'd like to look at this morning that maybe will give us some insight as to how he celebrated. So the first one we'll look at is in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, and here's what the Bible says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man who was there had been the invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now we could stop reading right here. This is a miraculous enough story on its own. But the writers of this story wanted us to know something else about the way Jesus understood Sabbath. Now that was the Sabbath, and so Jews said to the man before, who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But Jesus answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Isn't it interesting? They don't say, who's the man that healed you? They don't say, how did this happen? They say, who told you you could pick up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed uh, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, in the story, we meet a man paralyzed for 38 years. So he's certainly grown accustomed to that way of being in the world. In his case, as, as the storyteller reminds us, it wasn't an emergency case. Jesus could have waited another day to heal this guy. Now, I turned 36, Ellie gave it away, tomorrow's my birthday, um, and I turned 36 tomorrow. For my whole life, I've lived with this tiny thing. I have a blood platelet dysfunction that means that my blood doesn't clot as quickly as most people's. It's not hemophilia. It's a different type of blood platelet disorder. I know I just lost all the doctors in the room. They're going to be consulting the mental medical dictionary. Um, there's a name for it that I've forgotten by now. When I was young, our family practitioner said, don't. He just sort of said, don't. He told my parents, you have to be careful. Don't let him ride in a car ever. Don't even start the car without a seatbelt. Uh, contact sports, totally out. Roller skating, I don't know why roller skating was specifically on the list. Like, don't let him play any manly sports, and also no roller skating. Um, so I didn't play football. Instead, I played the piano. 
I didn't dribble a basketball down the court. Instead, I practiced scales. And in some ways, in some respects, I feel like my whole life has been shaped, has been defined by this, this one rather little thing. But I've always wondered, I've always wondered how my life might have been different. Where else might I have gone? What else might I have done if I could have been made whole? The man at Bethesda didn't have to wonder anymore. When Jesus healed him, he taught us that Sabbath is at least in part about being made whole. To be with Jesus is to be restored, is to be made whole. We, there's an expression that we sort of throw around today, Shabbat Shalom, right? You may have heard people say that. Shalom literally means peace, but it also means wholeness, completeness. We'll talk more about that next week. But in this story, Jesus is reminding them reminding us um, that Sabbath is at least in part about being shalom. It's interesting, too, that he told the man to get up and carry his mat, right? Like, according to the 613 laws, carrying anything was breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus instead made a statement that Sabbath is not supposed to weigh us down but it's supposed to make us whole. Remember, this is a new way of being in the world. So question number two in your worship guide. Does Sabbath hold you hostage, or does it set you free? If you've grown up with this tradition, does it hold you hostage, does it set you free? Does the idea of stopping, of not constantly being at work, is that a threat, or is that a relief? Let's look at another story in the Gospel of Mark Chapter three, verses one through six. Here's what the writer tells us. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. This was a trap already. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Jesus already sees what's going on. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Ironic that Jesus asked, what is lawful, to do good or to kill? Jesus does good, and they start planning how to kill. Ironic, right? I love this story because at the same time we see the compassion of Jesus, we also see the fire in his heart against people who abuse the system. We don't often think about Jesus as being confrontational. We like to talk about the Jesus that's in the Gospels, the gentle Jesus. Yes, Jesus loves me, not hell, fire, and brimstone, right? We don't like to talk about that Jesus. But here in this story, we see a glimpse. We see the compassion of Jesus, but we also see the wrath of God in the same story. So when Jesus asks this question, I hear him saying, you have laws that are so specific, so specific about how to protect Sabbath. 
but you're treating people like they're disposable. Why else would they have no answer to the question? I really imagine Jesus sort of, we have this, this expression in Colorado, poking the bear. Maybe you use a bigger, I would use a long stick when I, to poke a bear. But it's like, Jesus is sort of poking the bear here, saying, you who are so-called experts in the law, does your system help hurting people? Or does it just protect yourself? And the response seems to be, when they're silent, it seems to be, I can imagine sort of like a, well, we, we, don't, we don't really have a law for, for that. But actually, there was a law for that. Their own tradition held, the, held this. There is nothing more important, according to the Torah, their understanding of the law, than to preserve human life. Even when there is the slightest possibility that life may be at stake, one may disregard every prohibition of the law. So they knew the answer. They just didn't want to admit that they had lost sight of what was really important. Another story recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Another great story of Jesus' healing, of making whole on Sabbath. Some of the imagery is really great in this story. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had, been, who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Could not fully straighten herself. Have you ever felt like maybe you couldn't get your life straight? Like some commentators on this, on this story have suggested the woman was stooped over so much that she couldn't lift her head to heaven. Have you ever felt um, have you ever felt that way, that there was enough going on in your life that you couldn't approach God, you couldn't see God, let alone even the, the people that were around you? When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. He touched her. And immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, and I imagine him this way because I have glasses, but I imagine him sort of pushing his glasses further up on his nose. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Who do you think in this story, who do you think was more important to the ruler of the synagogue? The woman? or his own ox, his own donkey, his own stuff. I wonder sometimes if I've learned to just sort of worry about my own stuff on Sabbath, my own to-do list. Could it be that we've learned so well the rhythms of going about our own business that we've become blind 
to the world around us? Are we so consumed with keeping house that we miss the opportunities to connect with people that walk past our building? Or worse, through the doors. What do we do when we're not in this building? What do we do when we're on Pearl Street in the communities where we live? That brings us to our third recalibrate question for this morning. How does your celebration of Sabbath reflect and affect the lives of people around you? You may remember that we talked last week about the promise that God gave Abraham, about how he would be blessed and in turn he would be a blessing to the tribes, to the people around him. This week, Peter Chamberlain at our elders board meeting on Tuesday night shared something with us. And it was so moving uh, to to quite a few of us that were there. So I invited him to share it with you this morning um, in closing because I think it beautifully illustrates what I see time and time again in the way Jesus kept Sabbath, in what he showed us about the Sabbath. That to celebrate it is at least in part to be present enough where we are, to be open to the opportunities that God places in front of us. We'll talk more about this next week, but listen, please, to what Peter has to share with us today. This was a devotion for, uh, for our elders meeting, and so I want to anchor it to 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what I'm going to say to you is not with wisdom or eloquence. But I don't know if any of you noticed, but last Sabbath when I came in, I saw this sign. Hopefully they have a picture of it. A sign in, out in front of our church called, Now Open come inside. And I was a little miffed by that statement. Now open? Now open, I thought. Huh. This church has been open for 60 plus years. What kind of ignorance of Boulder's church's long history in this community is this? This church was long open, open long before any of the pastoral staff or current leaders were even born. But then we worshiped together and Aliyah preached on culture and counterculture and perspective. And then we studied the Bible together. Various classes, divergent thoughts, styles and approaches. Opening God's word together and not accepting something just because some leader from our tribe has said it, but really praying for the Holy Spirit and going where the Spirit leads us. And then finally, as Patty and I were preparing to leave for home, Pastor, Pastor Jessica has a nice ring, doesn't it? Invited several couples to stay and eat with the young adults. Funny term, young adults. It implies they are adults, but young. Is it just another way to segregate ourselves, to break ourselves down into ever smaller pigeonholes? Or dare I say clicks? Adulthood. Yay, finally made it. But so sorry, you're a young adult, or a young married, or young families. As all this wandered around in my mind as I ate with these young people who enjoy just being together, being in the same 
space and time with each other and anyone else who stumbled into their sphere. So later, Sabbath afternoon, I came to another perspective, thanks to Aliyah. Now I can't be satisfied with viewing things in life from my usual safe viewpoint. Now I am forced to turn things around, perhaps even upside down. I came to a new understanding of now open. Could it be a turn of phrase? Could it be that Boulder Church is now open to people? People created in the image of God, but sadly, not living in the image of God. People who may have lost the image of God growing up or had the image of God stolen from them or perhaps have never even known or seen the image of God. Is Boulder now open to this community, open to invite them to step inside our doors to taste and to taste and see that the Lord is good? Open to a bathroom ministry? Patty informed me that last Sabbath, in just one hour, four groups of people came into our church seeking the simple necessity of a bathroom. Perhaps that is this community's cup of cool water. Are we open to our neighbors and to this neighborhood, to providing opportunities for our neighbors to come inside, meet us, Join us in sharing what we have with others. Are we open to varied expressions of worshiping God? Boulder is open to life groups. Open to a summer intern program that puts our youth in action in their church. And more importantly, puts them in the path of our pastors and a daily involvement with the church's activities in the hope of having them decide that this is their church and not just their parents' church, that this is something that is a part of who they are. Open to not just saying our young people are important, but putting time and treasure to imbuing our youth with the fact that they are the church, that we need them to prepare and be equipped to stand on our shoulders as we have stood and are currently standing on the shoulders of those who filled these ranks before us. We need our young people to take Christ Church to heights that we could not, as we have taken it or tried to take it where previous generations could not. Which means that the Boulder Church is now open to saying that we still have a mission to fulfill. We still have a vision to follow we have not arrived. We are open to not just preserving the past, but open to Adventism's marvelous past. Bible-based, spirit-led, blessed by God. And to continue to push back on formalism and legalism, which are just as deadly in the end as spiritualism and paganism. Open to not just settle for Christ is coming again, but to champion in word, actions, and love that Christ is indeed here in Boulder, alive, well, and just as powerful as ever to give life and to give it abundantly to all who hear his calling and come unto him. Yes, Boulder is open. 
The question for me is, am I?